Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. And we are now broadcasting. Thank you very much. We'll be starting in about 30 seconds. Welcome to the Mitigating Cardiothoracic Surgical Global Health Disparities, a CTSNet World Hall discussion. This is a live webinar. We're gonna give all of you and our attendees another moment to log in, and then we'll begin today's discussion. Again, welcome to the Mitigating Cardiothoracic Surgical Global Health Disparities, a CTSNet World Hall discussion and live webinar. Before I begin, I'd like all of you uh, and, and encourage all of you to submit any comments or questions using our Zoom Q&A feature, not the chat feature, but the Q&A feature. We hope to address as many of your questions as we can uh, during today's event. I will be your co-moderator today. My name is Dr. David Tom Cook. Uh, I'm the head of general thoracic surgery at UC Davis Health. Uh, also co-moderating today will be Dr. Jack Podonu, um, instructor of uh, cardiothoracic surgery at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and at Harvard Medical School. We have a really exciting agenda today uh, with a wonderful, wonderful set of speakers who are all leaders in global health, um, uh, uh, world leaders in global health. We'll talk about cardiothoracic surgery capacity in Sub-Saharan Africa, opportunity and changes. A call to action for African cardiac and thoracic clinical registries. The role of humanitarian missions in strengthening national health systems, the Rwanda model. The role of NGOs in cardiac surgery missions and triumphs and tribulations in starting a global thoracic surgery program in your home community. And then we'll finish up with a panel discussion with Q&A, um, answering all the questions that you, the audience, have provided us. Our speakers today, many of you, many of them you know qu quite well. Uh, Dr. Chip Bowman, uh, the uh, professor of surgery at the University of Colorado. Dr. Emily Farkas, 
of the University of Indiana. Dr. Farkas is the Associate Director of Global Health uh, and Surgery. Dr. John DeGraff Johnson, a doctor's medical center in California. Dr. Frank Edwin, Professor of Surgery at Corley View Teaching Hospital. Dr. Kathleen Infinton of uh, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Dominique Verroot of John Hopkins Carey uh, Business School. So before we start off, uh, we want to learn more about you, our audience. So we are going to do a poll to better understand um, our audience and work and your and your role in global health surgery. So our first poll will be asking you what drives your interest in global cardiothoracic surgery. So this is a multiple choice. You could pick as many as you want. Uh, our questions include supporting capacity building efforts, addressing global health inequities, it's a moral calling, it's your academic interest, or you're just paying it forward. So we're gonna launch this poll and give ourselves a few minutes to uh, complete it. Great, interesting answers. Keep voting. Of course, in the United States, you can only vote once, despite what other people might tell you. A really even distribution. Quite a few with supporting capacity building efforts. And of course, addressing global health inequities. Great. It was a wonderful insight of our audience. Thank you very much. And these are the results of the poll. So to kick it off, we will start off with Dr. Frank Edwin, Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery at University of Health and Allied Sciences in Ghana. Dr. Edwin. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I just try and share my slide just now. And as Dr. Edwin sets up, I just wanna remind the audience to uh, thank you for your time and patience. Um, we're, uh, our, we are all experts in cardiothoracic surgery. We're not experts in IT. As, as all of you are learning, we are learning as well. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Cook. Um, and a warm welcome to our, our audience. Uh, thank you for taking time to join us. Uh, I'm going to speak on cardiothoracic surgery capacity in sub-Saharan Africa, opportunity and challenges. Um, I want to first uh, begin with a slide. Um, first of all, Sub-Saharan Africa is uh, the region in Africa that's 
south of the Sahara. So basically you take out North Africa and then the rest of Africa is what is called Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the importance of that um, is that you have roughly 47 countries, about there are seven, 47 countries uh, in that region. Uh, it has 1.1 billion people. Uh, if you compare that to North America, it's about three, almost three times uh, the population of North America and about two and a half times the population of the EU. Um, the important thing to note uh, here regarding the CTS nets, uh, regarding cardiothoracic surgeons uh, in this region, um, is that the numbers here are very low. Um, Dominique Vervoet actually published a paper not too long ago uh, where he compared the access to cardiac surgery and he looked at this data. Uh, so his data was 2017. I looked at this just a few weeks ago. Um, and so what you see there is that the CTS net registered cardiothoracic surgeons in sub-Saharan Africa, there are only 148. And this is a number that's supposed to serve a population of 1.1 billion. Um, the other thing, if you see on the slide, I've taken out South Africa with the black, is that the addition of South Africa actually distorts the data because South Africa alone uh, accounts for about 63, 63 of that 148. So roughly you are left with just about 85 cardiothoracic surgeons serving all this number of people. So it gives you an idea of the deficiency of surgeons in that, in that region. Um, now that is reflected, those numbers are reflected um, in the number of operations that are done in Sub-Saharan Africa. So if you look at that slide, uh, what you are looking at is that um, Republic of South Africa alone, uh, that's 2,800 open heart operations. Uh, actually, if you add the private sector in South Africa, you are going to get a total of close to 8,000. However, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, the number of open heart operations that were performed, this data refers to 2012, is just 1,277. So, so there is a gross, gross um, deficiency of services in this, in this region, which is, which is important to note. Uh, if you compare that, if you use that to compare the population that is served, it gives you an even uh, more distressing picture. So you see that in Sub-Saharan Africa, you have just 1.6 open heart operations per million people compared to South Africa alone, which is just 4.7. And if you compare that to North Africa, North Africa is averaging uh, 91.6. So Sub-Saharan Africa is really a distressed region uh, when it comes to cardiothoracic uh, surgery. Um, so clearly there's a neglect. If you look at the 1.1 billion people with this number of surgeons, with this number of operations, um, then, then the, the, it, it tells you there's a problem. But these, this, these figures have to be put in an economic context uh, because that is where the real challenge is. So if you look at 2019 gross national incomes, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is about $3,700 per capita. Uh, compare that to North America, which is 64,000. The EU is about 46,000. Uh, but then out of that, how much of the national income is devoted to health expenditure? So the total health expenditure per capita for Sub-Saharan Africa is just $200. When you compare that to that in North America, which is over 9,000, the EU is over 4,000. Um, those figures translate to 5.1% of the GDP of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, close to 10% and then 16.6% in North America. Now, that is challenging as it is, but then the region also has a lot of competing healthcare needs. So there's a lot of communicable disease in Sub-Saharan Africa dominated by malaria, diarrheal disease, tuberculosis, 
uh, HIV, uh, which are far cheaper to treat uh, if you compare that to cardiothoracic surgery services. Uh, and then in addition to that, you find that there's a very low political priority given to surgical conditions in general and cardiothoracic surgery in particular. So that, that, is, a, that is a massive problem. Uh, and the question you ask yourself is how does anybody improve the delivery of cardiothoracic surgery services in such a region? How does anybody do that? What justification is there for poor countries struggling to control infectious disease and malnutrition to focus on tertiary level care and cardiothoracic surgery? What, what justification is there? Um, usually when these questions are asked, the recommendation is from, from health economists, from public health specialists, the recommendation has always been first control communicable disease, and then you can address tertiary level care. Uh, but I think in the current era, there are very strong imperatives to revise, revise that, uh, that recommendation. And the first of them uh, is a present imperative, and it's actually due to the COVID pandemic as we face now. Uh, the COVID pandemic has shown clearly uh, that all nations must have a self-reliant, complete, comprehensive healthcare system. Any nation that depends on another for its healthcare is going to pay a heavy price in terms of lives and with its finances. Um, the COVID pandemic has also revealed that there is a critical care capacity lack, which is virtually non-existent in Africa. In fact, there was a statement from WHO that showed there were just about 2,000 working ventilators in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, if you compare that to about 176,000 in the USA, it tells you that critical care capacity in sub-Saharan Africa is severely deficient, severely deficient. Uh, again, the COVID pandemic has meant that humanitarian cardiac surgery missions, which was playing a very big role in sub-Saharan Africa, is essentially grounded. Missions can't happen anymore because of travel restrictions. And for the same travel restrictions, outbound medical travel, a lot of Africans used to go to India and other places to seek care. A lot of children have been sent out for congenital heart repairs. All that is grounded now. So all these patients are stuck in Africa and there is no service to meet them. So I, I believe this is a very strong imperative uh, for African leaders to focus on developing tertiary level care and especially cardiothoracic surgery. Um, in addition to that, there is also a future imperative which is due to the population growth in Africa. The UN has estimated that in the next 30 years, uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa's population is going to actually double. It's going to go up to about 2 billion people. Uh, again, the estimate is that 40% of newborns in the next 30 years will be born in Africa. Now, if you extrapolate that, what that means is that 40% of all new congenital heart disease cases will be in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Africa. Uh, in addition to that, there is also a rapid spread of urbanization in Africa. A lot of people are moving to the urban areas to seek for jobs and to seek for opportunities. Uh, which is going to place a very heavy demand on healthcare services, especially uh, tertiary level care, not just primary healthcare. So if you put all these together, it shows you there is a very strong imperative for uh, Africans to develop uh, tertiary level care. But imperatives aside, there are opportunities as well. And I think it is borne out by these figures. Um, beginning in 2010, uh, there were 3,000 Nigerians who traveled to India for medical purposes each month spending around $200 million for medical care. Now, this was in a paper that was just published earlier in the year, uh, a study on sub-Saharan medical travelers. You find all this data in there. And then in 2012, India issued 18,000 medical visas to Nigerian patients alone, receiving $260 million as revenue. And then in 2016, Africans spent $6 billion on receiving medical treatment abroad, 
Nigerians alone accounted for 1 billion of that. And if you look at East Africa, 100,000 East Africans travel to India annually due to high cost of medical care in their home country. And then the data goes on to say that Sub-Saharan African medical travelers are the largest contributors to the Indian medical travel industry in terms of numbers and revenue. And the top four specialties that are sought by people from Africa who travel outside, cardiology and cardiac surgery, orthopedics, spine surgery, and oncology. Now, to me, um, this, is, this, is, this is a great opportunity. Uh, in addition to that, the economy of Sub-Saharan Africa has been growing over the last two decades. Uh, most economies have been growing at around five, six percent per year. Uh, and then when I look at the size of this outbound medical travel, the economic impact it is likely to have on South Saharan Africa, I believe it's a, it's a strong opportunity indeed. But whose opportunity is it? Who, who is to take advantage of this opportunity? I believe first, uh, African governments need to develop an improved infrastructure and manpower to be able to ensure that these monies are spent in Africa and not, in, and not outside the continent, because I believe strongly this will to boost the economy of sub-Saharan Africa greatly. Again, it is also an opportunity for investors and healthcare businesses to develop the relevant services to meet such a great demand that is in Africa. It looks, everybody has been talking about the great need in Africa, but it's gone beyond need to a market now because the size of the, of the number, the numbers of people going out paying all these monies gives you an indication the number of people who are able and willing to pay for these services. And then for the cardiothoracic surgery community, I believe it is also an opportunity for us to advocate for our countries to develop the political priority and the cardiothoracic services that are needed to address, address this uh, need. Uh, so in closing, um, I would say that Sub-Saharan Africa's health problems are so daunting that it's very easy to overlook the opportunities that are present. But we are now presented with an opportunity for policies and legislation uh, to finance these surgical, surgical uh, issues. Uh, we have an opportunity also to improve the existing but underperforming uh, cardiothoracic programs. Uh, I believe in regionalization. That point has been made by a lot of uh, workers before. And we also need, I think, in Sub-Saharan Africa to encourage the private sector to participate in healthcare delivery in Sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Edwin. This is a wonderful start off to our webinar, uh, providing us an anchor uh, for our discussions. Um, I have a quick question for you. It was really fascinating, the data that you provided about medical tourism um, for um, uh, residents of Sub-Saharan Africa. And it seemed like uh, much of that medical tourism um, was, was directed towards India. Um, is there a, a reason for that? Are there programs set up between uh, India and uh, other countries uh, within Sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, what, do you, what, what would you prop, uh, proffer would be the reason why India is a, a specific um, uh, target for medical tourism? Yes, thank you. I think, I think the greatest attraction for India is uh, the country has been able to develop and provide quality healthcare at very affordable prices. Uh, in Ghana, for example, we close VSDs. Uh, it costs patients about $6,000. Um, you can get the same procedure in India for something around $5,000, $5,005. Um, and so the, the, cost, the cost advantage, I think, is the, is the biggest attraction. Um, I think India has also taken the policy step 
to kind of encourage private sector participation. And so their focus on quality is really extreme. Uh, you go there, the outcomes they get is fantastic. People go there, they are satisfied with the services. And I think it's really the cost issue, cost and quality. Really, what you are getting is value for money. And I think that is the greatest attraction that's driving people to India from Africa. Um, I think your mic is muted, so. Sorry. Um, uh, as I would like to remind everyone, we're not IT specialists. Um, <laughs> but for the lip readers in the audience, um, bear with me. I'm going to repeat everything that I said. Um, uh, we're going to move on with Dr. Jacques Bonu of the Beth Israel Med Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and, and Harvard Medical School. Uh, and just before um, he begins, I just want to remind everyone that this um, webinar is recorded and will be made available on the CTSnet um, website uh, for your reviewing uh, as, uh, at your own convenience. Thank you, Dr. Cook. Um, and uh, I would like to follow up on the excellent presentation by Dr. Frank Edwin who has outlined the uh, sub-Saharan African uh, cardiac surgery capacity need. Um, my talk will be focused more on why we need to generate the data and the registries to make the case to governments and to policyholders as to why cardiothoracic surgery needs to be funded. Um, I would like to also, um, before I, I go into the, um, cardiothoracic surgery advocacy portion, uh, briefly uh, comment on, on, on global surgery uh, as the, uh, the main reason why we, we need to start looking at uh, cardiac surgery as, a, as, as an issue. So global surgery, uh, as you know, has been um, called the neglected stepchild of global health. Uh, Five, five billion people lack access to surgical care, uh, both safe, timely, and affordable surgical care. Surgery accounts for 32% of the global burden um, of disease and 18 million preventable deaths every year could be prevented if uh, access to global surgery was available. Not only is global surgery uh, uh, not accessible, but it's also not equitably distributed. Of the 313 million surgeries that take place worldwide, the poorest third of the world receives only 6% of all procedures done. So again, we are able to, to see that there is a gross maldistribution of surgery uh, capacity in the global south. But we also know that less than 1% of global health investments uh, go to surgery. And that may be part of the problem. But in order for us to be able to convince governments uh, and funders, we need to also look at the financial implication of global surgery. So if we invest $350 billion in low and middle income countries, the 
loss of economic growth um, would be reduced by about $12.3 trillion. So this, this means that global surgery or surgery, um, you know, is also an investment. And so this is the, the story that we have to, to make to governments and to investors, that global surgery is not just, um, you know, a money loser as is being portrayed, but there's an economic reason for, uh, for global surgery. When we look at cardiac surgery, the, the numbers are actually worse. So if, if global surgery is the neglected stepchild, global cardiac surgery is the unborn child of global health. When we look at the numbers, 32% of cardiovascular disease in low and middle income countries requires surgery. And 93% of those uh, lack that access to surgery. And then when we look at the capacity of the workforce, as Dr. Frank had, uh, has alluded in his previous um, slides, we have few surgeons and few centers in Sub-Saharan Africa. North America has one cardiac center per 120,000 people. Sub-Saharan Africa has one center per 33 million people. And when we look at the costing and financing of cardiac surgery in Sub-Saharan Africa, there is no insurance in most countries. So cardiac surgery is either funded through charities, uh, self-pay, out-of-pocket expenses, or through missionary work. Now, Dr. Vervood has uh, done an extraordinary work mapping out the adult cardiac surgery workforce uh, he looked at the CTSnet data, and uh, out of 12,180 cardiac surgeons, he was able to distribute them amongst uh, countries and continents. And if you look at this map, it is very clear that Africa has a paucity of cardiac surgeons and, and, and centers. Some countries have no cardiac center, and some countries have no cardiac surgeons. But we know that the burden of rheumatic heart disease, which is about 33.4 million, uh, mostly resides in Africa. And of those, less than 80% uh, make it to 25 years of age. And about less than 10% actually have uh, or get any form of cardiac surgery. When we look at the pediatric uh, workforce, uh, the numbers are again as daunting as the adult cardiac surgery workforce. So for every 0 0.07 pediatric cardiac surgeon per million in um, low and middle income Africa, in the US or in Europe, we have about 9.5 per pediatric cardiac surgeon per million. So again, the disparities are very wide. And most babies in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, about 90% of them with, that are born with congenital heart disease receive no treatment or suboptimal care. So based on the data that we've, uh, we've shared um, from Dr. Frank's uh, initial presentation and the, and, and the numbers that I'm sharing with you, it is paramount that we are able to measure and acquire the data to be able to make the case for uh, either to governments or to funders why cardiac surgery or cardiothoracic surgery 
needs to be funded. So I believe that a registries have to take into account mapping out the workforce. So by workforce, we want to know what the surgical workforce is like, what is the non-surgical workforce, and are there any training programs? Uh, in terms of infrastructure, do we have, how many cardiac centers do we have in a region or in a country? How many operating rooms? How many intensive care units? And what's the supply chain distribution like? In terms of service delivery, we want to know what is the surgical volume? What kind of cases are there? Where is the referral network coming from? And what's the quality of care? And finally, we need to be able to determine some form of uh, costing data, which means we need to be able to directly measure medical costs as well as non-medical costs, as well as uh, financial risk protection. As you may recall, Dr. Frank Edwin mentioned about um, many African patients going to India for medical tourism. And that's because India has been able to streamline those costs because of economy of scale. So going forward, I think as we start to map out the, uh, the workforce, the infrastructure, the service delivery and the uh, financial cost, I think we need to start collaborating more amongst ourselves and perhaps developing North-South collaborations as well as South-to-South collaborations. The reason being that not every country may have uh, the resources uh, you know, to set up a center, but if we were able to regionalize care, perhaps uh, we can treat more patients. We need to generate a very robust uh, local national and transnational longitudinal registries that again will map out those workforce uh, service delivery the uh, financial costing um, as well as infrastructure needs and ult ultimately by generating this kind of financial data uh, it's going to be easy for us to be able to advocate uh, with policymakers and funders as to the need uh, for setting up cardiothoracic surgery centers in sub-Saharan Africa. I'd like to thank uh, my fellow panelists and uh, my co-moderator, uh, as well as uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine uh, for uh, organizing this webinar. And then thanks again to the audience for um, calling in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a, a, a wonderful uh, overview. Um, uh, as uh, uh, we have a time for a, a question, um, I, I really like the statement in your slide, uh, we can't manage what we don't measure. Um, and you, you really itemized a lot of different uh, points of measure, whether it's quality of care, uh, whether it's cost, um, and other things. Um, you know, some other things I would throw in there would be sort of patient-reported uh, patient outcomes uh, and, uh, and, and other aspects of measuring uh, the care continuum. What, what are your thoughts uh, on the role of uh, perhaps uh, expanding uh, databases um, that are prevalent in North America uh, into Sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, such as uh, perhaps the STS database uh, or NISQIP or other um, um, 
uh, databases that we use here that help us to guide our quality improvement efforts. So thank you, uh, Dr. Cook. Um, I, I am in very strong uh, agreement that we need to leverage uh, what's already been done, uh, either with the STS database or the uh, European uh, counterparts, and perhaps uh, you know, modify it a little bit to the local context in Africa. Um, and I think that might be perhaps the low-hanging fruit uh, from, from my talk and from what we've heard, at least to start mapping out some of the, uh, the, uh, you know, the needs uh, out in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm, I'm totally in agreement with, with us moving forward on that. Great, as, as especially as many databases are already in existence, as opposed to creating from scratch uh, a uh, sort of pan-African national database, um, uh, more of a, translate, a translation of existing databases. Great, well, we will move forward uh, with Dr. Chip Bowman, uh, Professor of Surgery, University of Colorado. Uh, and uh, Dr. Bowman, you made the same mistake I did. You left your mute on. Is it off now, Tom? Uh, yes, we can hear you. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I'd like to echo the uh, thanks, warm thanks to the audience for listening in this morning and to the organizers and moderators. I think this is a very timely and um, uh, important discussion right now. Well, I've been asked to talk about the role of humanitarian missions in strengthening national health systems uh, our work has been in Rwanda, so that will be uh, uh, my frame of reference. Uh, we do have some disclosures to uh, reveal. We've had in-kind support generously from many of the valve uh, companies, medical device companies, um, University of Vermont, uh, and the others listed. We've also received uh, for our work uh, support from Edwards Life Sciences in the form of Every Heartbeat Matters uh, uh, for the last several years as well. This has been absolutely essential uh, to our work. So I think we all are here today because we feel that uh, where you live shouldn't determine whether you live and that extraordinary efforts are necessary to make, make that true. Why did we pick Rwanda? Um, as you're all aware, the genocide there occurred in the spring of 1994, um, horrific event. Uh, it was finally ended by Paul Kagame uh, in the Rwanda Patriotic Front, uh, and he is now currently the president of Rwanda. The population currently is about 12 and a half million. There's seven cardiac surgeons, and as of spring of 2019, there is one uh, cardiac surgeon, which I'll talk more about later. Rwanda is a tiny country in East Africa. It's the, one of the most densely populated countries in the world, um, but it is very small. It's um, surrounded by uh, the Congo, Tanzania, Uganda, and Burundi. Kigali, the capital, is located uh, <clears throat> geographically right in the center of the country, which has been beneficial because our, the hospital we operate at, King Faisal, is located there, and it allows us to access uh, the various reaches of the country. 
<clears throat> the genocide occurred in 94, um, and it, along with that, much of the healthcare infrastructure, many doctors and nurses were, were killed. Um, and Paul Farmer was invited by the Ministry of Health uh, with Partners in Health in 2005 to come and start rebuilding the healthcare system. They noticed a lot of rheumatic heart disease and heart failure as they began hospitalizing patients in the rural districts and um, <clears throat> uh, issued a request to me uh, to, to bring a cardiac surgery team uh, to, to, uh, to try and uh, address this. We were both working at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at that time. We started planning uh, for a humanitarian surgery trip in 2006 and seven and made our first surgical trip uh, to Rwanda in 2008. Our mission, uh, as I'm sure has been the mission of the other uh, humanitarian programs that are represented today, was to provide cardiac surgery to patients who really had no other options. We also felt it was important to, right from the start, to initiate capacity building, <clears throat> educating patients, educating Rwandan medical staff on how to deliver cardiac surgery care and transferring as much surgical and medical training and equipment as we could. We, of course, had to bring heart-lung machines, don't, uh, monitors and all that sort of thing because Rwanda has never had any constitutive cardiac surgery and still doesn't to this day. We also felt it was important to initiate programs in prevention and school health because the best thing we could do would be to eradicate rheumatic heart disease over the next uh, couple of generations. So I think that needs to be an important part of these efforts. So from 2008 to 2019, we took uh, annual uh, surgical uh, trips, um, uh, performing surgery, trying to transfer as much knowledge and, and skill as we could. Um, in 2020, in February, we were able to accomplish the first of four trips that we had planned in 2020, designed to mentor uh, our Rwandan cardiac surgeon and his team. Uh, due to SARS, um, COVID-19, remaining trips have been unable to be completed as was mentioned by Dr. Redwin. <clears throat> we are planning actively both in the US and in Rwanda to uh, provide virtual real-time presence um, for patient screening surgery and post-operative care until we can travel uh, there in person. Uh, overall, we've operated on just over 200 patients with the age range, uh, senior young patients, for the most part, slight preponderance of females with the uh, results uh, shown here. Uh, we've reported our 10 year, uh, first 10 years of experience at the 2017 ATS meeting in, in Boston. And this is a publication that came from that and further details about the work in Rwanda can be gleaned uh, from this paper. So how does this all relate to healthcare, syst healthcare system strengthening, which is the topic that I was asked to speak about. I think there are a number of ways, and I don't really have time uh, to talk about these in detail, but I'll try and touch on what I think are some of the most important. Increased awareness to heart disease is certainly top of list. I remember one of my first uh, uh, flights to Rwanda, I was sitting next to a uh, young man from Germany who was a consultant with the Rwandan government on, on healthcare priorities and um, resource allocation. And he, he let me look at a list of healthcare priorities in Rwanda, this is probably 2009 or 10. And heart disease wasn't even on the list. <clears throat> I mean, it was, it wasn't even in, in the, in the nickel seats. It wasn't anywhere to be found. Uh, I think because of 
some of the work we've done and other uh, works groups that have worked in Rwanda and other similar areas, uh, NCDs uh, are now realized, recognized as, as looming problems in these countries and cardiac disease, cancer, um, orthopedics, diabetes, these kinds of things are beginning to appear in the healthcare priorities of these countries. But that is a relatively recent development and government funding uh, has not really begun to reflect that in, in, in near the measure that it needs to. <clears throat> Uh, healthcare provider education, I think, is, is absolutely critical, especially in countries like this that don't have any, any uh, specialty training since we're talking about uh, cardiac surgery. Uh, patient education and advocacy uh, has been talked about eloquently by Dr. Edwin and, and Dr. Kodu. <clears throat> Post patient post-operative care, you're going to a country that's never, never had or has had very little cardiac surgery, so this is all very new and has to be established. Um, importance of supply chain uh, cannot be overstated. And, as, and, and again, as going to be talked about later, the registry for uh, RHD, I think, is extremely important because without data, without knowing how, what, your, what your own program is doing, uh, what the impact you're having on, on, uh, on the population. <clears throat> so in, in terms of awareness, uh, as, as a result of our presentation in, at the AATS, uh, Denise Grady, the New York Times, uh, contacted us and we invited her to travel with us in uh, 2017. And she spent a couple of weeks with us and wrote this article uh, for the Times. I think this uh, was well done. And, and I think for all of us in the field was uh, a great uh, thing to increase awareness and make people uh, knowledgeable, at least of, of, of the great need uh, has been so nicely addressed uh, in, in, in the underdeveloped parts of the world. In terms of how do we try to develop a sustainable program, we really emphasize team teaching, skill and knowledge transfer during our trips. We have actively involved uh, international training of our key providers, particularly the cardiac surgeon, uh, perfusionist, uh, and cardiologist. Um, we've tried to influence the government policy, uh, again, to recognize the importance of non-communicable diseases and very important to bring stakeholders together, as, as, as Jacques uh, mentioned. Uh, we can't, none of us can do this by ourselves. We have to work together and uh, take advantage of the, of the scarce resources that we each bring to the table. And then again, uh, in our own case, we are transitioning currently to serving in a mentoring role for the local team um, so that they can begin operating independently as soon as possible. This is, uh, uh, Myself and Bob Oaks, one of our, another one of our surgeons helping uh, Maurice Massoni, who's uh, the uh, first ever Rwandan cardiac surgeon. He uh, completed his training at the University of Watersrand in Johannesburg and uh, notably passed the South African Board of Thoracic Surgery exam in the spring of 2019. He was, interestingly, he was the only graduate in the country who passed the exam that year, which I'm sure uh, was not well received by the South, South African academic surgeons, but we were quite proud of him. Um, another uh, contribution we made, this is a young man that we met in, uh, 28, in 2008. During our first trip, we uh, thought he was uh, too sick for us to operate. We hadn't had much experience there. We brought him to, we were able to find a donor to bring him to Boston, um, did a double valve replacement on him and he um, has returned to Rwanda and this is him 
graduating from medical school. I mentioned the importance of working collaboratively across multiple stakeholders. This is a uh, paper that just came out in the Annals of Global Health, uh, not by our group primarily, but it was, it was just published in September. And actually there are six different uh, distinct groups, including the ministries of the government of Rwanda and um, some uh, NGOs that have worked in Rwanda. And it, it is directed to the post-operative care and the creating of a registry and the first results uh, from that. So this is, it's very important to work collaboratively both with other organizations, um, but also with, uh, with the host country. We've also felt it important to involve young, young trainees um, in this experience. I know this is, can be controversial, not, not to go let them do things they can't do at home or that sort of thing, but because we wanna inoculate them at a young age with the uh, critical importance of this work. So we've taken surgical residents, um, quite a number from a number of institutions around the country, cardiac surgery residents, anesthesia residents, there have been two of them every year since, uh, since we started and some medical students as well. Some of the names uh, on here uh, are, are going to become leaders in, our, in, the, in this field in the future uh, without question, and some already uh, are. So in conclusion on this um, part of my comments, the Team Heart Volunteer Humanitarian Effort has demonstrated the capacity to deliver um, acceptable, high, effective and high quality care, to transfer knowledge and skill, to mentor local personnel, to create a platform for, sustainable, for sustainability. And I think you can argue that it has strengthened the national healthcare system. I wanna talk just about, just a moment about another opportunity uh, and effort that's going on that I think um, can have great bearing on, on the topics that we're discussing today. In 2017, on the, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the first heart transplant, um, Peter Zilla, uh, who's the Christian Barnard Chair in Cardiac Surgery at the University of Cape Town, organized a South-North Dialogue on Access to Cardiac Surgery in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. Uh, surgical leaders and society leaders from around the world were uh, in attendance and the meeting was devoted to lack of access for the forgotten millions. This led to the uh, creation uh, of the Cape Town Declaration, uh, which is shown here. <clears throat> this is the Declaration on Access to Cardiac Surgery in the Developing World. Notably, this was published simultaneously in nine cardiothoracic journals in <clears throat> August of uh, 2018. <clears throat> the central message of the declaration is to urge all relevant ent entities within the international cardiac surgery industry and government sectors to commit to develop and implement an effective strategy to address the scourge of rheumatic heart disease in the developing world through increased access to life-saving uh, cardiac surgery. This was adopted by all major societies in cardiac surgery, as well as the World Heart Federation. It called for the creation of the Cardiac Surgery Inter-Society Alliance, populated with two members each from the uh, four major societies, along with the president of the World Heart Federation, representative from the medical device industry, uh, who's volunteered to help with fundraising. And there's also Peter Zilla is also involved as in that large member. We've met at all the major uh, in-person uh, meetings until COVID uh, caused that to be interrupted. The charge to the CSI was to identify, endorse, 
and help resource clinical sites and then training sites in more middle-income countries. And in the, in the declaration, it describes why we feel it's so important that training actually has to happen in countries that have analogous training and clinical situations to the, to the ones that the trainees are going to encounter at home. It was decided that we would initiate uh, this effort with one to two clinical sites to demonstrate proof of principle. And this is clearly the first effort of this scope and scale to address the lack of access to cardiac surgery in the developing world. An issue, uh, a request for proposals was issued uh, at the AATS in Toronto for uh, sites that desired uh, help increasing their clinical activity. Uh, the first round of applications was received, evaluated, and uh, four uh, of us representing the CSIA completed site visits at the, in three, on the three finalists in Sub-Saharan Africa in February 2020, just as COVID was emerging. Uh, and we have completed the, the, uh, the evaluation process and we anticipate announcing the sites for endorsement and launching fundraising efforts in early 2021, hoping um, at the STS, although I realize that will not be an in-person meeting. So in summary, humanitarian cardiac surgery missions can strengthen national healthcare systems by some of the means that I've shown and others I didn't have time to discuss. I think as has been mentioned, working collaboratively with cardiology industry and government, the field of cardiac surgery can play a major role in leading efforts to increase access to cardiac surgery for the forgotten millions. Thank you. Great, well, thank you very much, Dr. Bowman. Uh, that was, a, uh, that was a, a wonderful overview of your decades experience in, in Rwanda uh, and success there, uh, as well as uh, a new nugget information of the, the exciting CSIA, um, uh, multi-specialty multinational collaboration. Uh, I encourage our audience participants to keep an eye out on that organization, uh, that collaborative for, for future RFPs. As sort of a, a follow-up question, um, you mentioned that, you know, unfortunately prior to COVID-19, um, but you had started a, a, a mentorship, sort of a targeted mentorship uh, approach in Rwanda with a specific Rwandan cardiac surgeon uh, and uh, that person's team. Uh, one of our audience questions uh, discusses a Ghanaian and a Namibian model uh, where mentor groups stay in the country for an extended period of time, uh, training the local team uh, to sort of uh, take over from there. Is this a, a new paradigm uh, within your experience and your, your Rwandan approach, or is this something that, that really has been integrated for quite some time? Are you talking about the, the, uh, what, we've, what we're doing in Rwanda? So staying for a long period of time and then training uh, the local um, uh, specialists, uh, um, sort of the skill set that you have, uh, and then that being passed forward and, and being self-sustaining. I think that's an excellent, uh, excellent model. We have not uh, done that. All the participants in Team Heart have, you know, had uh, day jobs in, in the U.S. and couldn't take extended periods of time. <clears throat> um, I have retired from surgery now, and I, I have some problem with you know, performing cardiac surgery if you're in Africa, if you're not doing it, you know, at home. I know this is probably, there are differences of opinion on that. I think it's an excellent model. Another one is to send a team 
to a place like uh, Narayana in, in uh, Bangalore. Uh, I know that that's been done in Ethiopia um, with, with some success as well. Um, <clears throat> we, um, this young man, uh, excellent young man, Dr. Masoni, um, was very well trained. We mentored him and helped him do eight cases uh, in February when we were there. They all did very well. And we thought with the three or four more trips, he'd be ready to go independently. He has good cardiology support. There's adequate perfusion anesthesia. Um, now we're trying to figure out a way to be back there virtually uh, in real time so that we can help him uh, continue developing his team until we can be back there in person. But certainly I think the, the Namibian uh, model is, is one is something to consider. Great. Well, thank you very much. We're going to uh, keep moving along. Um, uh, and um, uh, next up is Dr. Emily Farkas. Uh, she is of the University of Indiana and the Associate Director of Global Health in Surgery. Dr. Farkas. Thanks so much, Dr. Cook. And uh, thanks to CTS Ned and to this esteemed panel to be uh, part of a group and speak about things about which we're passionate. Um, so I want to try to tackle the role of non-governmental organizations uh, in cardiac surgery missions, which is a, uh, a big thing to, uh, to hit on in 10 minutes, but I'm gonna do my best here. The, um, the way I'd like to approach it is to first assert that I think the role is very significant, and then what I think that role shouldn't be and what that role should and can be in the future. It's probably no surprise that I would take the position that that role uh, of NGOs is significant in trying to bridge some of the really substantial gaps that we've had expressed earlier today. Uh, you know, there's not just uh, gaps in access and delivery of care, but also in resource provision and education and training. And, uh, and all of these things uh, can be done on some level with training outside, with um, scholarships to go to meetings, with uh, online curricula. But I think the main advantage of an NGO is their boots on the ground. So they're right there head to head with the surgeons and the clinicians and identifying the unique problems that are individual in each country and each program and coming up with solutions that, that are meaningful. It's not about how we do it in the US or how it would be best done in the UK. It's about um, what problems we have in this infrastructure and in this context and how we solve them best and safely. I wanna to talk to you about a few examples of how that's been done really well. And there's countless um, examples of this among our colleagues and in our societies, but one I wanna highlight is Heart to Heart, which is an NGO that's been highlighted and headlined by um, Dr. Nihilus Young and his colleagues. And they have an outstanding example that's actually outlined really beautifully in the citation at the bottom of the screen. But they have quite literally um, assisted in changing the landscape of the access to pediatric cardiac care in the Russian Federation. In the, the red uh, markers, you can see the programs that Heart to Heart has trained and established and helped progress towards sustainability. And in blue are the uh, locations where they've made assessments and plans to expand their, uh, their training in the future. And 
if you can see to the left, um, this is an extrapolation of really the effect that they've had. And it's not uh, particularly the individual effect that the members of the charity have had personally on patients and access to care. It's exponentially through everyone they've trained, the train the trainer type model, where they train one clinician who then goes on to treat many patients as well as train other clinicians and all of the patients that they then treat. It's an exponential way to affect heart care. And this was all headlined by this NGO. Another different but also large scale example uh, is, is through an Italian NGO named Emergency International. And they have a, and they built a hospital called the Salam Center for Cardiac Surgery just outside of Khartoum, Sudan, specifically uh, because it was bordered by so many countries like Chad, Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, countries that have been really subjected to different uh, degrees of political unrest, war crimes, etc. And this hospital provides only cardiac surgery at a level that would parallel anywhere else in the world. And they've been able to, uh, to accomplish closer to 8,000 cardiac surgeries now, quite quietly, <laughs> without a lot of our colleagues even knowing about it. They're in the center of Sudan, and it's been all completely free of charge to every patient and family based on the efforts of this NGO. Another example would be, of course, what uh, Dr. Bowman just, just showed us on a smaller scale. And Nigeria, despite it being uh, such a populous country on the African continent, is also smaller scale progress. But I want to highlight um, something that Dr. Bodhi Falashade just presented last week at the Nigerian Cardiac Society. Speaking of the importance of um, knowing the information to try to uh, make changes in it. Uh, he's been quite a proponent of databases and of registries to achieve that goal. Just the schematics to the right, I wanna point out that the, uh, the color in orange at the top and in blue in the bottom really reflects the, uh, the shift in the ratio of orange being visiting team surgeries, NGOs, individuals, other organizations, um, and you can see that right around 2010 to 2015, there was a shift. And I'd like to think that that was a strategy shift where uh, the local teams were empowered as opposed to just having teams come in and do the operations and leave. And it was absolutely a collaborative effort among many. But you can see that shift to where now the bar at the, uh, the bottom is reflective of the resident or local team headlining these operations, and it's an important shift. So I'm certainly uh, aware of the scrutiny and the uh, dissent that surrounds NGOs and fly-in missions. And there's a, there's a really uh, compelling article, I think, um, called Seven Sins of Humanitarian Medicine that's over 10 years old now, but actually it's still quite accurate today. And it's really modeled based on the, the seven cardinal sins of Catholicism, but I think it's a really interesting way to, um, to do an, an intellectual honesty check on what we're doing. Certainly there's a lot of um, criticism that fly-in missions are doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And there's been um, sort of comments like it's surgical tourism or even more harsh surgical safaris or, or neo-colonialism. 
And I, I think it's important that we're all, like I said, honest about why it is we're doing and, and what reason we're doing it for. One of the other criticisms is the failure to match technology to the local capabilities. So one example would be um, donating stents and catheters when there's no cath lab, or um, perhaps the tendency to want to use a cell saver device when, when the disposables are literally unable to be sourced in the country. Uh, trans catheter valves when the, when the country doesn't have a solid um, ability to do conventional valve surgery. There's a lot of ways that we mismatch, um, I think, what's best for the country and, we, and the program. And we need to ask those individuals those questions, not sort of assume that we know the answers to them. Um, leaving a mess behind. So, you know, complex interventions beget complications and there needs to be a, a plan either um, what can be done after, as far as uh, leaving team members behind, um, more ideally, focusing on the surgical judgment before the operation and preparing the ICU with skill transfer for after the operation. That can't be emphasized enough, in my opinion. Failing to have a follow-up plan, we all know it's been emphasized the importance, <clears throat> excuse me, of moving towards uh, independence and sustainability. It just has to be part of the strategy and you saw in some of the examples earlier that um, this is often a 5, 10, 15, 20 year uh, endeavor and investment, but the returns are um, undeniable. Placing politics, training, or other goals above service. <clears throat> when I say training, I think it's interesting that Dr. Bullman brought up the point about how important it is to expose, I think, our residents, fellows, and trainees to humanitarian work, and I agree emphatically. But what I mean here is if you, I always tell ones that accompany me, you're, you're, gonna, you're going to assume a different role, as we all do, on these missions. And our priority is to empower and train and give the opportunities uh, to the local team in every way to build their strength and, and progress. And so it's not about bringing a resident to, um, to improve their skills necessarily operating and so forth. Going where uninvited, um, you know, we may say, well, I, I think the Democratic Republic of Congo needs cardiac surgery, and that may be true, but I don't think there's any reason why we should be um, the ones who decide where we are contributing, whether it's because it's a good place to travel or it seems like we have a, you know, an expatriate sort of relationship. The most successful programs are initiated, I believe, by, a, uh, by requests, support, endorsement by the local ministries of health, the local leadership, the local team who are engaged uh, in the program development. And then as Dr. Bowman also uh, referred to, failure to cooperate, not just with you know, other um, government agencies or to you know, use your position to influence some favorable change, but the failure to cooperate between NGOs to me has been the thing that's been most um, concerning and it's our biggest opportunity in the future. So what should that role be? What can that role be? Again, we should be empowering with the goal of sustainability. It's the, the typical mantra, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him to fish, feed him for a lifetime. We should be engaging hospital administration and the government, as I mentioned, to try to secure not just funding, but to uh, establish sourcing of needed uh, supplies and 
materials to sustainably conduct cardiac surgery, and we can help with that. And we often have a, a unique vantage point to be able to do that in a way that uh, rises above the local politics that some of our colleagues uh, are entrained in at their local hospitals. Assist with the implementation of quality assurance and, and databases, just like has been Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTS Net Video, by following at CTS Net Org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.